1: Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show, we'll be responding to this year's Nobel Prize winners.
0: The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has today decided to award
2: 2018 Nobel Prize in Chemistry.
0: Physiology or medicine?
2: Physics.
1: How could we make our technology more ethical?
2: What if we didn't design technology to maximize distortive social realities we put in front of people?
1: And why dragonfish, is the new black.
3: It is essentially just as good at absorbing light as the darkest material that we've ever managed to create.
1: But first, it's Nobel season. On Monday morning, Tasuku Honjo and James Allison learned that they were this year's winners in the category of physiology or medicine. They were recognized for their pioneering cancer therapies. Natasha Loder is our healthcare correspondent. She explains. Cancer immunotherapy is really
4: an idea that scientists have been trying to pursue for decades, which is to harness the power of the body's own immune system to fight off and defeat cancers. So James Allison and Tezuko Honjo were initially working on separate uh, sides of the planet and not together, Um, but both of them were working on um, these these protein molecules uh, that stick out on the outside surface of white blood cells called T-cells. And both of them independently speculated that if you were to somehow block these molecules, Um, which are now known as checkpoint inhibitors, uh, if you were to block them, you would release the T-cell and allow it to attack cancer. The scale of the contribution made by both these scientists is enormous. They've laid the foundations for immunotherapy, which looks from where we're sitting now to be the most promising new approach to cancer treatment that we've seen
1: almost probably ever. On Tuesday, it was physics, where our prizes this year focused on excellence in lasers. Here's our science correspondent, Tim Cross, to tell us more.
5: So the physics prize was actually split three ways, but um, all of it was to do with lasers. The first share of it went to somebody called Arthur Ashkin, who used to work at, uh, at Bell Labs, and he invented something called optical tweezers, which are basically exactly what they sound like. They're tiny laser beams that you can use to hold really small objects like cells or even individual atoms in place and kind of manipulate them. The second part of the prize was split between two people. So uh, a guy called Gerard Mourou and a woman called Donna Strickland, who incidentally is therefore only the third woman ever to win a physics prize. Um, That was about lasers as well, but it was about how you make them more intense and more powerful. And the problem with trying to make powerful lasers is that they tend to fry the innards of whatever it is you're using to generate them. So they thought, well, you know, power depends on how much energy you put through something and how quickly you do it. So what if you keep the amount of energy the same, but stretch out the amount of time it takes? So they basically took a laser pulse that was very, very short duration and stretched it out, so it took much more time. That meant the maximum power was much, much lower, and that in turn meant you could amplify the intensity of the beam without destroying your kit. And then at the very very end, you sort of squidge it back down so that you know all that energy gets squashed back into a tiny amount of time, and you end up with a very very high power laser. Something called chirped pulse amplification. There's all kinds of uses. The um, the Nobel committee chose to talk about uh, laser eye surgery, which uses beams like that, but um, it's also used in in physics so probing sort of ultra short. Uh, timescales. It's used in, in industry for drilling holes in things and, and sort of laser cutting and laser manipulation generally.
1: And on Wednesday morning, the Nobel Prize in chemistry was split, going to both Francis Arnold and going to the duo of George Smith and Sir Gregory Winter. Anunabhattacharya, our science correspondent, tells us what to make of their work.
0: So all three winners of the Nobel Prize for chemistry have uh, made enormous advances in our understanding of how we can harness the power of evolution uh, for our own ends. Frances Arnold, who was um, awarded the prize for directed evolution of enzymes, basically, she randomly mutated these enzymes, ran them through a screen, picked up those that worked really well, uh, mutated them again, and did this for a few cycles. And what she ended up with was just an enzyme that worked a whole lot better than the one that she started with. The second half of the prize was for phage display. So phage display uses bacteriophages, which are viruses that infect bacteria. And when they do that, the bacteria is kind of forced to produce lots and lots of copies of that particular virus. What uh, George Smith realised was that you could use these bacteriophages to screen for proteins. Then Gregory Winter, who who realized if the proteins that you're using were antibodies in this process, you could make them more and more selective for their protein target. The protein target that he ended up using was a protein called TNF-alpha, and this causes inflammation in autoimmune diseases. And by using phage display, he was able to come up with a version of an antibody for this protein, which was very specific and has since become a blockbuster drug for diseases like
1: um, arthritis. Our thanks to Natasha Loder, Tim Cross, and Anunno Bhattacharya. You're listening to Babbage from The Economist. Next up, Tristan Harris is a former design ethicist at Google and a co-founder of the Center for Humane Technology. He spoke to our deputy editor, Tom Standage. You started
6: the Center for Humane Technology. Um, What does that mean, and what is it about technology today that's
2: inhumane? So we're a nonprofit, first of all, and we work on only one question, which is identifying where society uh, is being harmfully steered by technology. Um, And we focus on realigning technology with a more authentic, clear-eyed model of human nature so that we don't create the kinds of harms like steering the world towards populism, mental health problems, teen suicides and depression, loneliness, and addiction. Okay, so tell us how technology is steering us towards those bad out- outcomes now.
6: Is that really happening?
2: Well, so this is a common thing, right? People say, well, technology is just a neutral tool, like a hammer, and we always adapt to new technologies, and we always have a moral panic. So we're just having a moral panic now. What could be the difference? I am from the tech industry. What most people don't understand about how technology is designed is there's teams of product managers who have one goal, which is how do I keep you using the product frequently and for as long as possible? With a teenager, it might be something like if I'm trying to compete against other photo sharing apps, let me add filters into the app. Because if I give teenagers an unrealistic standard of beauty, then they will continue to use the app and check photos that have an unrealistic version of themselves and will keep them using it more often than if they didn't have the filter. But this turns into this kind of race to the bottom of the brainstem, deeper and lower into fear and outrage and unrealistic standards of beauty deeper and deeper parts of the human animal to drill attention out of them to get that stock price up. So all of
6: these companies then are trying to make their apps and their services as addictive as possible to maximize engagement and thus add revenue. And that leads them to design the products in ways that have bad consequences. Now, the example you've given already is the way teenagers might, their self-image might be affected by the use of filters. But uh, what are some other examples then of the sorts of things where what look like kind of apparently minor design decisions on Facebook or or whatever um, can have really uh, big real-world consequences?
2: Very simple example. So YouTube, first of all, 1.9 billion human animals use YouTube. That's a lot of people. And they're jacked into this system that's basically people spend 60 minutes a day on YouTube. That's the number, 60 minutes. And 70% of that 60 minutes of what people watch is determined by the algorithm, by the thing it recommends to you. So video ends, let's do a countdown, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, boom, you're watching the next video. The problem is that this little tiny feature called autoplay actually can create and amplify populism and conspiracy theory thinking because if you watch you know a video on racism or something it'll steer you towards like white nationalism and and more aggressive forms if you watch a video on uh, vegetarianism it steers you more radicalizingly towards veganism. If you watch a 9-11 news video, a regular 9-11 news video, the next autoplay video will be 9-11 conspiracy theories. And this
6: is because these things, the algorithm can see that these generate the most engagement. And if you're just interested in maximizing engagement, that's the logical thing to do next.
2: That's right. It doesn't know the content of these videos. It's not like there's a human being at YouTube who's choosing any of this. We think of them as like a digital Frankenstein, except this is running around in the world, you know, stomping through the world. And on its hands, on the digital Frankenstein, it's, it's connected its, its hands to 1.9 billion human puppet strings. And it's tilting the whole world towards these conspiracy theory type thinking and no one at YouTube even knows what's going on. It's out of control. What about what
6: engineers can do? So people in your line of work, people you talk to, you say many of them are concerned about this. Is that an avenue by which you might get things to change?
2: Absolutely. So actually, it's been our, our biggest lever of change is that anyone I've ever met in the tech industry is actually idealistic and generally thinks that they're, it's the, the reason they're working in it is that this is the best way to impact the world on a large scale. And so no one wants to be responsible for being the largest threat to democracy or electing populists or, you know, causing these mental health problems. What we found is that when engineers see that this race for attention is causing these problems, they don't actually want to work at those companies. And it makes it harder to face up to your friends when you're having drinks in the Mission District of San Francisco and you take a sip and you say you work at one of the companies and your friends say why are, you know why aren't you guys doing more to tackle this issue and i think that has actually worked at generating much more response uh, from the companies on the inside. Because if you can't, if there's an HR crisis and you can't hire the best people, that actually is much faster acting than policy, which takes years to potentially implement. So the fastest way to change the companies is to change culture for employees.
6: What about the features that have just been added to both Apple and Google's mobile operating systems that allow people to track how long they're spending and so on? Is that a step in the right direction?
2: It's a great baby step in the right direction. It's definitely going to help people take more control, be more reflective, and even see how much time they're spending. But again, uh, electing populists because a thousand, millions of people believe in conspiracy theories is not solved by that problem, nor are the mental health problems and the body dysmorphia problems and the alienation and loneliness that people experience. So That still exists even if you limit the time. So now I'm looking at a distorted social reality, but I'm doing it for fewer minutes per day. That's a step in the right direction, but what if we didn't design technology to maximize distortive social realities we put in front of people? That would be a better solution, and that's what humane technology is about, and there's a bigger conversation to have about that.
1: Our thanks to Tristan Harris. So what are your thoughts on ethics and technology, and do you have any ideas that might help? Tell us in an email and send them our way to radio at economist.com or on Twitter, at Economist Radio. Finally, scientists have long looked for ways to make blacker and blacker substances. Vantablack is the darkest artificial material. It was man-made, and it reflects less than one-tenth of one percent of the light you shine at it. Go online and look at it right now. It is absolutely extraordinary. But researchers in California have now found a fish that may do the job just as well. Katrine Brahek is our science correspondent, and she's been diving deep into this. First of all, Katrine, what is the fish called? And tell me, how black is it?
3: Hi. Uh, so the fish is called the dragonfish. It's an ugly, ugly fish. You should go and check that one out online as well. It's got sort of sharp teeth and this weird long beard. Um, and it is covered in a black substance. It's not really a skin. It's more film. Um, And researchers noticed that they found it really, really hard to take pictures of this fish. And so they wondered why it was that they couldn't take pictures of this fish. And that's when they went and took measurements of the light that was being reflected by their skin.
1: So why couldn't they just sort of pluck the fish out of the water and take a photograph of it in natural light?
3: Oh, so that's what they were trying to do. But even in natural light, when you shone light at it from different angles, the fish, basically, if you took a picture of it, all you would get was a very nice black silhouette. You wouldn't get much definition of what was actually happening on the surface of the fish. Basically, this coating absorbs all of the photons that, be- that are being fired at it. And it's extremely similar to what,
1: what um, uh, engineers created with Fantablack. Black. So this is interesting. So this was not a case of biomimicry in which we knew about the fish, Instead, we created the nanocarbon tubes to actually absorb light, and we find out the fish does something similar.
3: Yeah, so what happened is a few years ago, some engineers at a company in Britain invented this coating called Vantablack. And Vantablack is basically millions of carbon nanotubes stood up on end in a forest. And what happens when you shine light at it is that the photons get... Lost in this forest and they sort of bounce around inside the forest of carbon nanotubes, they never escape. And so you, as the observer, don't actually see the object. Because when you're looking at an object, what you're looking at is the reflection of light that's coming back at you. So this coating, Vanta Black, is absorbs 99.96% of photons that are fired at it. Um, and it turns out that when the researchers went and took equivalent measurements for the coating of deep-sea fish, including the dragonfish, they found that the coating absorbs 99.95% of the photons that are fired at it. So basically, it is essentially just as good at absorbing light as the darkest material that we've ever managed to create. That's extraordinary.
1: So tell me, the fish must have this to evade predators.
3: Yes. Um, So what's interesting is that although these fish live beyond what's known as the photic zone, so basically uh, the depth beyond which the sun and the moonlight don't actually reach. It turns out there's actually quite a lot of ambient light down there, and the light is created by the organisms that live there themselves, what's so known as bioluminescence. So in fact, uh, what I've been told by some of these researchers is that if you go down there in a submarine and look out, or if you go down there with a robot and take pictures, Um, the whole area is basically bathed in this glowing bioluminescence. And fish use this for all sorts of different reasons. But one of them is to hunt. And so they might make flashes of light in order to illuminate their prey. And what do you do if you're the prey? What you want to do is basically absorb that light. What you don't want to do is reflect it back at the hunter. And how has it evolved this way? So nobody really knows how it evolved. But one plausible explanation is that in the deep ocean, there's this arms race between light and dark. So animals using light to hunt need to be countered by animals using darkness in order to absorb that light and disappear. So it's basically the revolving invisibility cloaks for the deep ocean.
1: That's fantastic. Katrine, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. I'm Kenneth Kukier. And in London, this is Vanta Economist.
3: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools